Good. Good morning, everyone. Now, today, you might not know, but today's actually a significant day. Um, I won't ask you to say what, because it's a bit obscure, unless anyone wants to hazard a guess, of course. No? As I say, a bit obscure. Today is the last day of the autumn half-term holiday. <laughs> that means that tomorrow is the first day of the Christmas half-term. That whether we like it or not, we are now officially in the lead-up to Christmas. <laughs> now, I've been told that I'm a bit of a Scrooge when it comes to Christmas. I don't think that's entirely fair. I do admit that I do find some aspects of it a bit difficult. But the truth is that whatever we might think about the way that we celebrate Christmas, one thing we can surely all agree on is that we have a cause to celebrate. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, Jesus, the creator of the universe, Jesus, the infinite and all-powerful, took on flesh and became a man. The light of God broke into this dark world. God incarnate. Jesus. Emmanuel. God with us. And if that's not a reason to celebrate, then I don't know what is. So, with no apologies, we're going to start now looking forward to Christmas. And what that means in terms of our preaching is that we're going to change the emphasis of our series, um, Jesus Through the Eyes of the Old Testament, and we're going to start looking specifically at passages in the Old Testament that talk of Jesus coming um, as the Messiah. So to kick us off this morning, I'm going to take us to the book of Isaiah, not, I'm sure, for the last time. But this morning we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 42 and the first seven verses. So let me start um, by reading that to you. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or discouraged till he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says the God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the nations, a light, a, a, a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So as we start to dig into this bit, I want to start by remembering the context in which this word was given. So Isaiah was prophesying in the last days of Judah's existence as an independent, sovereign state. The Assyrian Empire over to the east was growing in strength, and soon, within 100 years or so, Jerusalem would fall, and the Jews would be carried into captivity in Babylon. So that was the immediate context. 
But to understand the significance of that event, we need to go back even further. Right back to before the Israelite nation even existed. Because at that time, God made a covenant with Abraham. God promised Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation. And that through that nation, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Right from the beginning, it was God's plan to bless all the nations of the earth. And Israel was to be the channel of that blessing. The plan was that Israel would walk hand in hand with their God and be so blessed by God that everyone else would see and take note and be drawn to God. The Israelites were to be a light to the nations. But it didn't work out like that. Days after their deliverance from Egypt, they were already grumbling against God and their whole history was one of rebellion, followed by repentance, followed by rebellion again. Now we know that for a while the light shone brightly through the, uh, the times of David and Solomon, but then just as quickly it dimmed again. And now the whole nation was in imminent danger of being swallowed up by the Assyrian Empire. So what of God's promise to bless his people? And through them, all the nations of the earth. Was it all over? And this prophecy gives the answer. And I just want us to try and see how it might have, um, have, have, have been understood by the people um, that it, were, it was originally given to. Now, obviously, we look back and we see the fulfillment of this prophecy in Jesus. But I want to see it from the other way around. So who were the people to whom this prophecy was given? Well, most immediately, these were the people that were facing the threat of invasion. Later it would be the people that had been taken off into captivity far from home. And later still it was those that were back in the land but were enduring hundreds of years of God's silence. And for these people, this prophecy and others like it must have been a great source of hope. Something to cling on to. Look at some of the things it says. It says, I will send a deliverer and he will free the prisoners. That's a great word to have when you're in captivity. But more than that, the word promises that this deliverer will bring justice to the nations. In other words, the covenant that God had made with Abraham will be fulfilled through this person. See, God's saying he hasn't given up on his people. Yes, they had failed time and time again. They had turned from God. They'd gone their own way. But here God is reminding them of his heart towards them, a heart of love and grace and mercy. Although they are a broken reed, a smoldering wick, God says he won't break them off or snuff them out. He isn't a God who gets discouraged. He won't give up. He will follow through on his promises. And then we see that God reminds them who it is that's saying these things. He is the creator, God who made the heavens and the earth and gives breath to all that are in it. In other words, he is the powerful and sovereign God. He can do what he has promised. There is no ruler or nation powerful enough to thwart him. No spark small enough that he can't revive it. No people so broken and bruised that he can't restore them. And so God encourages people, keep going, trust in me. In my time, I will act. I am still your God, and you are still my people. I have not abandoned you. I will keep my promises. I will fulfill my purposes. And these are good words for them and for us. And I'm sure they must have been a great source of encouragement for those people. But it can't always have been easy for them to hold on to that word. Isaiah gave this word 700 years before it found its fulfillment in Jesus. That's a long time. 
And as I've already indicated, it wasn't an easy time for the Israelite nation. It was a time of danger, of national humiliation, of captivity, of God's apparent distance and silence. There was lots of time and plenty of reasons for people to question whether God had really spoken, to ask whether he really was there or whether he was really in control. And I wonder, can you imagine yourself in their place? Have you even asked the same sorts of questions? See, it's easy for us to look back and see that God actually was at work and he hadn't forgotten his promises, he was preparing the ground, and at the right time he did indeed act. Jesus, the promised deliverer, the light of the world, was born in Bethlehem. But it wasn't so easy for them. And there's a lesson there for us, I think, because in the New Testament we have lots of promises that God has made. For example, he said that he will build his church. He said that his kingdom will be established. He said that Jesus will come again. But that was all written 2,000 years ago. And we look around us now, we see a world in turmoil. We see widespread persecution of Christians. We see our society rejecting its Christian heritage. We see need and difficulty and hurt and darkness. And isn't it easy for us to wonder when and how, and even if, God is going to fulfill his promises? So my first encouragement to you this morning is to look back and see God is faithful. He will do what he says. We've just looked at one example. There are many more. In the case of this prophecy, the Jews had to wait 700 years for its fulfillment. But in his time, God did act. Habakkuk 2.3 says, 2.3 says, For the vision waits its appointed time. It testifies of the end, and it will not lie. Though it lingers, it will surely come and not delay. He did do what he promised through Isaiah. The light did come. You'll remember when the baby Jesus was brought to the temple, there was Simeon there, and he took the baby Jesus up in his arms and blessed God and said this, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, for glory for your people Israel. See, God does keep his promises. 2,000 years ago, his promise made through Isaiah to send a deliverer was fulfilled when Jesus came. Simeon got to see God's promised saviour. But, you know, there were many that didn't. And it's the same with us. Not all of us are going to live to see the fulfilment of all of God's promises. But that doesn't mean they won't happen. In particular, he's promised that Jesus will come again. And we might not all live to see that day. But that doesn't mean it isn't coming. And we must live in the light of that hope. There are so many other promises given in the Bible to us as a church, to some of you as individuals, and we need to hold on to them, to keep going, to trust God and to have hope. God is faithful. He is sovereign. And he will do what he says. I want to change tack now, and I just want to look at some of the things we can learn about Jesus from this prophecy. Now, I'm going to take it as read that Jesus was the fulfillment of this prophecy. The New Testament writers were clearly sure, as indeed was Jesus himself. If you're not sure, do come and ask me. The first thing I want us to note here is that Jesus was a servant. Starting right at the beginning of the passage, we see that God describes the coming deliverer as his servant. And the mission was to bring justice to the nations, to bring freedom to the captives. But God didn't send a king or a warrior. Jesus wasn't born to privilege or to riches. He was born in humility, in a stable. 
And Jesus said of himself that he didn't come to be served, but to serve. And that confused the disciples. It confounded the religious leaders. And I think it can make us even feel a bit uncomfortable because it upends our normal expectations. We're used to leaders being powerful and uh, powerful people. We imagine that things get done by the strong and the influential. But God doesn't play by man's rules. He uses the weak to shame the strong. Jesus said that the greatest in the kingdom of God are to be the servants of all. God's chosen one, his son, the one in whom he took delight, the one that he sent to set the captives free, came as a servant. And we too are chosen by God. We are adopted as sons. We are delighted in by our heavenly father. And we too have the mission of bringing freedom to the captives. And like Jesus, we too are called to be servants. So my simple question here to us is, where are we serving? What is it that we can do? There may be spiritual gifts that God has given us to build up the body. Are we using them? There may be practical things that we can do. In Romans 12, Paul gives a list that includes both things. He says that we should offer our bodies as living sacrifices because this is our spiritual act of worship. And he, and he gives examples from, the, from giving prophecy to the giving of money, from teaching to practicing hospitality from leading to sharing with those in need. We can all bring something. We need to ask ourselves, what can I bring? What can you bring? Second, we see that Jesus did not grow faint or discouraged. Verse 4 tells us he will not grow faint or discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. You know, God just doesn't give up. We're reminded of this in this passage. God created the earth and all that's in it. He gave breath to Adam and Eve. His plan was that they and their descendants should walk with God in relationship with him. And as we know, Adam and Eve rebelled against him. But rather than start over again, he initiated a rescue plan. We've already seen how he made a covenant with Abraham to make a people for himself. But they kept rebelling right from the days after they'd been rescued from Egypt and throughout the Old Testament. But still God didn't give up. And finally, he sent his son. Jesus came into the world. But was he received? And we know the answer is no. His whole public life was filled with opposition and hardship. The religious leaders hated him. His disciples didn't understand him. The some that he healed didn't thank him. And even those that welcomed him with hosannas within days rejected him. Over that time, he had every reason to be discouraged and to give up. But still he carried on. Still he persevered. He carried right on until on the cross he cried out, it is finished, and he did the work that he had come to do. And Jesus told us that we too would face the same hardships and the same temptation to give up. And we do, don't we? Being a Christian can be hard work. I've mentioned the importance of serving, so let's use that as an example. See, it's not always easy, is it? It can be costly in terms of time, effort, and money. And there isn't always an obvious reward. It doesn't necessarily make us feel good. Sometimes we feel it doesn't make any positive difference. And sometimes our efforts are thrown back in our face. And we can feel discouraged and want to give up. And that's why so much is written in the New Testament to encourage us to keep going. 
Hebrews 12, for example, encourages us to run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And there are times when we need to rest. There are times when we need to take stock, times when God leads us by the still waters. But then there are times when we need to pick ourselves back up again and get on. A few years ago, we as a family were in the Pyrenees and we decided to climb a mountain. And it wasn't a sort of ropes and vertical rock faces kind of mountain, but it was very tall and the slopes were very, very steep. And as we got near the summit on the steepest slopes, we had to stop every sort of 50 metres or so just to get our breath back. But we couldn't stay resting. If we had, we wouldn't have reached the summit, which we did. And it was hard, but we had to rouse ourselves, we had to pick ourselves up, and we had to get back on again. And I don't know where you are today, and perhaps you're one who needs to step back and take a rest for a while and get your breath back. Perhaps you're one who's had a rest, and now you need to rouse yourself and get back on again. But wherever you are, let's all of us keep our eyes on the goal and keep pressing on. There'll be plenty of opportunities for us to be discouraged and to get faint but let's try to imitate Jesus and like him, let's keep on going. Let's not give up. Let's not grow weary of doing good. And for the first thing, the third thing I want us to learn, let's turn to verse four. Now I know I'm just cherry picking here, but there's, there's a lot in this passage and we can't cover all of it. So let me read what it says about Jesus in this verse. And we read that, a bruised, bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. We see in these verses the correct context for our service and perseverance. Because in these verses we see a beautifully poetic illustration of God's heart of love to his people. And all that we do has to be a response to the grace and love that God first poured on us. Everything has to flow from here or it simply can't flow at all. I think the imagery of this verse is very clear. Both the bruised reed and the faintly burning wick are pictures of brokenness and weakness and failure. See, neither of these things are fit for purpose. A bruised reed is weak and has no use. A faintly burning wick sheds no useful light. What do we do when an object is broken and no longer useful? Perhaps your favourite mug got cracked. When you put water in it, it leaks. What do you do? Or maybe you dropped your mobile phone in a puddle and it stopped working again. What do you do? And the presumption of this verse is that the practical, sensible and reasonable thing to do is to discard that which is broken and start again. Get a new mug or a phone, light a new candle, choose another read. But what this verse says is that that's not God's way. The servant he will send is, will not give up on that which is broken. His heart is to restore, to remake, to bring back to life, to heal, to free. So this verse gives us a beautiful insight into the heart of our God. So again, let's start by thinking how this verse might have been understood by its original hearers. So this is the Jews as they face the prospect 
of invasion and captivity by the Assyrian army. And the more reflective them might well have looked back over their history and they would remember that God miraculously rescued them from Egypt. But almost immediately they turned from God and they worshipped the golden calf. They complained, but God kept them. And throughout the hundreds of years that followed, the people kept turning from God, but he kept drawing them back again. How many times would he have had good reason to say enough is enough to break off that broken reed, to snuff out that smouldering wick? But he didn't. And those Jews that would have remembered their history would have heard these words and surely they would have been comforted. Even now, as they face the destruction of their land, God wasn't going to give up on them. He had a plan. He was going to rescue them once again. He was going to be faithful to his promises. His love really was steadfast and unchanging. Think about the image here, a faintly burning wick. Now, I'm sure that many of you try to light a fire. So imagine you're outside and you're going to perhaps burn some rubbish, maybe light a a campfire, whatever. So you've crumpled up some newspaper and you've um, laid some thin bits of kindling over the top of it. And perhaps you've arranged some larger bits of wood on the top of that. And then you light your match and you carefully shield that little flame and you light the paper. And hopefully if the paper's dry, it all flares up. And for a moment it looks like it's all taken, but then it all dies back again. The paper's burnt up and all that's left is a little bit of a glow on one of the bits of kindling. What do you do? Well, perhaps the more sensible of you will just start again. But for the sake of this illustration, imagine that you're obstinate like me. So you get down low and you put your hands around to shield that ember from from any wind or rain. And you find the smallest, driest bits of kindling that you can and you gently lay it on top. And you get down and you breathe very, very gently onto that little ember. And as it starts to glow a bit more, you put another little bit of kindling on the top of that. And carefully, you nurture that little spark of life until gradually it becomes a flame. And that's the picture that's being painted here of our God. And that might come as a surprise to some of you here today. Perhaps your image of God is someone who sits high in his heaven and he pours out wrath and judgment on the earth. But that's not the God that's being portrayed in the, in the pages of the Bible. Yes, he is a God of righteousness and justice and judgment. We'll come to that later. But first, what I want you to see here is this is a God that is slow to anger. A God of immense patience. A God who cares and nurtures and protects and cherishes. A God who doesn't give up or get weary. But a God who gives one chance and then another and then another. Countless times in Israel's history, he could have walked away, but he didn't. He got down low and he sheltered and he protected and he breathed ever so gently. And when all of that failed, he got down even lower. He didn't just kneel. He didn't just carefully rest himself on something so he didn't get himself dirty. He got right down. He laid himself right in the mud and so that he could get as close as it was physically possible to get. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. God didn't just sit in his heaven. He came down, right down. The word became flesh. Jesus, the son of God, came right into the darkness, right into the suffering, the pain, the loneliness, the sickness, and the hurt. And he shared in it all. Because he didn't just come to experience it, he came to deal with it. He said to himself, I have come to free the captives, to bring sight to the blind, to bind up the brokenhearted, to bind them up, to care for them. 
On being asked why he was eating with the outcasts, he replied, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but it's the sick, and I have come for the sick. To Israel, a habitually willful and rebellious nation, he said that he so often longed to gather them under his wings as a mother hen gathers its chicks. And this is our God, a God who protects and nurtures and gives and forgives and gathers and frees and heals. And when we think of God, this is a good place to start. But you know, we mustn't stop there. Verses 1 and 3 both say that God's servant will bring justice. Verse 5 speaks of his power and verse 6 of his righteousness. And righteousness and justice in particular suggest judgment. You know, in our society, judgment is seen as a bad thing. It's seen as a mark of virtue to say you don't judge. To be labelled as judgmental is one of the worst appellations you can be given. And so a God who is one who is judges is seen as being a bad God, a God to be feared and disliked. Now, I don't want to spend long on this today. This view needs to be challenged. First, we need to see that justice is good. And really, it's obvious, isn't it? We know it. Everyone out there knows it. A three-year-old child knows it. Whether it's the fact that her brother got a bigger slice of cake, or we get a detention at school because somebody else did something wrong, or maybe our manager has passed us over for promotion because they have taken a personal dislike to us. We all recognise injustice and we all want to appeal to someone in authority that can do something about it and make it right. A society where there is no justice is a terrible place to live. Justice is very good. So the fact that the servant in this passage is coming to bring justice is very good news. But of course there can be no justice without judgement. We can't have justice if we can't identify the wrong and that's what judgement does. But we also can't have justice if nothing is done to right the wrong. And that can only happen if there is someone with the will and the power to do something about it. If you've been treated at work, you would like to be able to take the matter to someone who not only can see and agree that you've been mistreated, but can and will enforce a solution. So surely a God who is able to discern right and wrong, a God who is committed to doing something about it, and a God who has the power to enforce a solution is a good God. God's righteousness and justice and power aren't just compatible with the loving, nurturing, caring God we've been looking at. They are an essential part of the whole. So God's servant came to bring justice, and that's good news. Or at least we can see that it's good news in some ways. We would all rather live here in the UK rather than North Korea, for example. We'd all like to live in a society where we're all treated fairly, to work in a company where there's equality of opportunity and pay and so on. Justice is great when we stand to benefit. But it doesn't always look so great when it's us that is exposed as having um, done the wrong. And it's us who are faced with the consequences. And the problem is that everyone from Adam and Eve to the Israelites to us has done wrong. And we know it. We've all gone our own way. We've all done our own thing. We've all turned our back on God. And as a consequence, we all face the judgment of this God of justice. We can't just appeal to his goodness because, and ask that he overlook our wrong because his justice flows from his goodness. His very goodness demands justice. His very goodness demands that our rebellion be dealt with. It would have been the right and proper and good thing for God to punish us. That would have been justice. But in fact, when God's servant came to bring justice, he did it in a completely unexpected way. God, in his infinite mercy and grace, found a way to punish our rebellion and so satisfy justice. 
and to forgive us, showing, showing mercy. And that's what we're going to celebrate in a moment as we share communion together. We remember that God's chosen and beloved servant was in fact Jesus, God the Son. And on the cross, Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, bore the punishment that was rightfully ours so that we, who were locked in darkness, could go free. Love and justice abound together in the person of Jesus. And through his death and resurrection, we can be the beneficiaries of both. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we no longer have to fear God's righteousness and power and justice. Instead, we can rejoice in them. Now they become the source of our security and our delight and our hope. So we're nearly done, but before I finish, I want to go back to the image of the bruised reed and the smouldering wick, because I think there are times when we can all identify with uh, ourselves with this, and perhaps that includes some of you here this morning. Maybe there's something particularly you've done which you feel disqualifies you, or perhaps you just feel that you keep failing. Maybe you struggle with some sort of pattern of behavior or thought or speech, and you know it's destructive, it damages you, and maybe it hurts others. And though you try, you keep slipping back into it. Perhaps you're battered by life, bruised by relationships, overwhelmed by all the demands that are on you. It could be that your faith in God is at a low ebb. You hear me talking about being a light to the nations. You think, not much chance of that. I hardly know if I even believe in God anymore. A smouldering wick just about sums me up. And as we look at God in his righteousness and power and splendor, we can think, if I was him, I would give up on me. I know I've thought that. I'm weary of the whole thing, and if I'm ready to give up, then surely God is too. But no. You might be a bruised reed, but God will not break you. You might be a smouldering wick, but he will not snuff you out. He is powerful, holy, and just, but he cares for you with a tenderness and a patience that you can scarcely imagine. Don't let your feelings of weakness and failure cause you to separate yourself from God. He wants you close. He's made a way for you to be right there. Come to me, he says, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let me leave you with one final image. I want you to imagine a crocodile, specifically the mouth of a crocodile. And you've all seen the pictures. You know that this mouth is filled with big, jagged teeth. And you probably know, too, the jaws of a crocodile are immensely powerful. They can kill huge creatures just with their mouth alone. But this same mouth can pick up its eggs and carry them so gently that none of them are broken. Immense strength and tender gentleness. This is our God. Strong enough to keep his promises. Strong enough to defeat the enemy. Strong enough to protect strong enough to carry your burdens, strong enough to be completely dependable, gentle enough to nurture you, to love you, to bind up your wounds, to fan into flame the dying embers that are in you, to hold your hand and to keep you. And with his strength and gentleness comes perfect justice and gracious mercy. This is the God that we come to now in communion. And the Father says, come. Don't hold back. Don't refuse to be gathered under his wing. The servant has come. Justice has been done. But the broken reed has not been broken. The smouldering wick has not been snuffed out. Instead, Jesus has taken your failure. He has paid the price for it. So you can be free. You can come in his righteousness.
into the arms of your Father. So let's celebrate God's love, patience, gentleness, strength, justice, and mercy as we share communion together now.